It's Tuesday, June 1st, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Few people know as much about U.S.-Mexico trade, supply chains, and immigration, or about Mexico's politics, its cartels, and how the country has transformed in the past few decades, as our guest today, Shannon O'Neill. She's the author of a book entitled Two Nations, Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. And she's a scholar at the Council on Foreign Relations, where she is Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies, and Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the David Rockefeller Studies Program. We clearly have a lot to talk about. I'm excited to have Shannon with us here today. Shannon, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Grace, my pleasure. I'd like, if you would, to give us a comment on healthcare in Mexico and particularly, obviously, in light of the pandemic. Well, the pandemic in, I mean, almost any country around the world showed the weaknesses of healthcare systems, and many were overrun in advanced industrial economies as well as emerging economies alike. And so Mexico was no different. But it did show a big weakness and the real inequalities in the healthcare system in Mexico. So you have private healthcare that international companies or, or some other big companies provide for white collar type workers and more upper middle upper class workers. You have some big healthcare systems for public sector workers, and then you have very limited healthcare or very uneven healthcare, I would say, for you know the vast majority of workers who either work in the informal economy or lower rungs of, of the private sector. And one of the things that had happened is right before the pandemic had started, a big insurance program that was government run for people who are in the informal sector was called a Seguro Popular, sort of popular security that some 50 million Mexicans were part of. The Lopez Obrador government had ended that program, was creating a new program that had not yet really gotten up and running. And so when the pandemic hit, it just it fell apart. And so you saw hospitals just overrun. You saw lack of oxygen when when the pandemic hit Mexico. It hit it hard, and the healthcare system really crumbled across across all levels. Did they have one wave or two waves? Or I think of Mexico City as as one of the most populous cities in the world. So natural super spreader place, if you will. How many waves did they had, and how bad was it? So Mexico's numbers, official numbers, are a very low count on what really happened. And it was sort of one continuous wave because this was also a government that took minimal actions, frankly, to lock down. Yes, there were some lockdowns. Yes, there were some changes. But it was a government that continued to allow foreigners to come in. In fact, U.S. uh, vacationers have continued to go to Mexico throughout this whole process. You know, Ted Cruz and his family were a famous one when they left Texas to go down there. Um, But there are millions of other Americans who have gone down for spring break or for vacations and the like to get away from some of the restrictions that they faced here. So you've seen flows of people going back and forth across borders, even though technically the U.S.-Mexico border has been closed to land traffic. The air flights have not been closed. And you just didn't see the shutdowns of businesses and the like that you saw in the United States. So they did not put in those social distancing measures that you know slowed the pandemic. So you saw a wave just continue. And they really have not been counting the numbers. So it's hard to know, but it could be upwards of a million people that lost their lives in Mexico this last year. Wow. I wanted to ask you finally about the favorable business climate. A lot of people were encouraged when AMLO appointed Romo as his chief of staff, thinking that that would temper somewhat 
AMLO's political framework, I guess you would say. What is the business climate now in Mexico? This has been one of the biggest changes, I would say, from the past governments. In Mexico, for a 25-plus year, the years of NAFTA had been a place that was very open to domestic and international direct investment, foreign direct investment, as well as domestic investment. And so you saw protection of intellectual property rights. You saw the rules of NAFTA that had a level playing field for multinationals as well as local companies. You saw different aspects and real openness in in particularly communities or states in the north part of Mexico, the industrial north, to draw business in. So it had been a place, particularly among emerging markets, that was pretty, um, that was very receptive to investment. And that has really changed over the last couple of years. Um, The biggest shift has been in the energy sector. So that was a sector that had opened up in 2013, 2014 to foreign investment for the first time. And that has systematically been rolled back. There's real questions about whether that was done legally, both in Mexican law, as well as in the USMCA, which is the replacement for NAFTA. But you've seen it across the board, sort of the politicization of investment, new rules and regulations, governments, whether local governments or the federal government, intervening and making decisions that really make it hard to do business. So in the wake of these changes, you have seen investment, both foreign direct investment, as well as particularly domestic investment by Mexican companies just decline precipitously even before the pandemic to some of the lowest levels in decades. So overall, not a great business climate right now. This, I guess, brings us to narco land, for lack of a better word. Where are we in the great battle to be the dominant cartel with El Chapo gone. You know, what we have found in Mexico and other countries around the world is that when there is money to be made and illegal money to be made, illegal markets to profit from and weak rule of law, that others appear. So there are several different cartels. There's other ones, uh, one based in Jalisco that is now ascendant and still fighting with the remnants of the Sinaloa cartel, which was Chapo's organization, which is still there. You know, the interesting thing in Mexico over the last five to 10 years is we have seen real changes in what they move. So, you know, yes, cocaine and marijuana are still parts of the drugs that they move, but increasingly fentanyl and other synthetic drugs are a really big part of what they're selling and bringing often the precursors in from China and then coming up into the United States. And, you know, we see that in the United States. Last year, 70,000 Americans died of fentanyl overdoses. And some of that, some of that was here in the United States, and there's lots of reasons why it's happened. But a lot of that had moved up through Mexico. So different kinds of drugs lead to different cartels rising or falling. The other thing that you've seen as the U.S. border has hardened and been harder to cross is that these organized criminal groups prey increasingly upon Mexicans. So they extort local businesses, They prey upon the oil distribution, so they steal oil from Pemex, the state-owned energy company, breaking into pipelines and siphoning off gas that then they go on to sell or oil that they go on to sell. They've really diversified their business model, not just from drugs or cocaine back in, you know, 20 plus years ago into a whole set of businesses, which makes them, you know, much more stable because they have lots of different revenue flows. And we have not seen a Mexican government that has been able to to take them on. My theory about the fentanyl epidemic here in the U.S. is that the Chinese, having endured the opium crisis of the previous century, have long memories. And so, you know, it's payback time, basically, and they're flooding the U.S. with fentanyl via the Mexican cartels. Is that completely crazy? Or There are parallels, definitely. 
yes, they're supplying those aspects, but they're not bringing their warships to, you know, bring it directly right, to, right, to the right, U.S. Right, consumers right, the way the British right, and, right, and the Americans right. did back in the day. A little day. more subtle, right? <laughs> yes, a little more subtle. I remember reading a story of a Nebraska state police officer who, you know, saw a truck, kind of a U-Haul truck, wavering a little bit down the road. He pulled it over, and it turned out that inside the truck there were you know, some astronomical number of doses of fentanyl, it's much easier to to move it than, say, heroin or cocaine, right? It takes no space, right? The size of a, you know, a UPS package, a, a box, you could have millions of dollars worth of fentanyl in there. It's such a tiny amount. It's so strong, so concentrated. And then it can also be laced in other kinds of drugs. So you can add it to marijuana or cocaine or others as you diffuse those. It's a very potent, quite versatile drug, but one also that if you get a little bit too much can lead to death and overdoses. And that is, that's the real challenge here. We saw, I guess, earlier this week in Sinaloa, the acting, well, I guess, police chief of the county. I don't know quite how you would describe him, but the head of the police there was assassinated, shot down. His bodyguard apparently disappeared in the shootout, leading some to believe that maybe the bodyguard was the spotter for the killers. If you're in law enforcement in Mexico, you sort of have to make a choice between taking cartel money or getting killed, right? It is that way in many parts. And in fact, it goes beyond law enforcement to politicians. So we've seen local mayors or council members and the like who come in and want to have a different approach, want to be reformers, want to clean up the way their town works or, or the, you know, their local city works and, and also have been killed. And in fact, Mexico is about to go forward into midterm elections. June 6th will be midterm elections, both for the whole you know, lower house, for the Congress, uh, House of Representatives, for 15 different governors, and just thousands of municipal level positions. And what we have seen is, is an increasing political violence as cartels organize crime in the area and want to make sure that their people get in at these more local levels. So it is a huge challenge. And the Lopez Obrador administration really has not been taking this on. And in fact, if anything, over the last two years, they pulled back previous investments by Mexico, particularly, but also by the United States alongside Mexico to create stronger, more professional state level police, community police and the like that he's really focused all of the security efforts on the military to militarize Mexico's you know, war on drugs but also just basic security within the country, dealing with migration, dealing with all these issues has gone a real focus on the military, which is something that Mexico hasn't done before. But so far, two years in, we still see record levels of violence and crime within Mexico. It hasn't made any difference. Hmm. You said the uh, elections are coming up on June 6th. There are, I don't know, for like 5,000 individual races, I think, right? What's emerging from the election campaign? Is there a sort of wave of anti-AMLO building? Is there opposition from his left? Is there, a, like in Germany, the AFD? Is there a strong right-wing movement? What's your read on that? So what I see are a couple things. One is that there's some dissatisfaction with Less AMLA, but more his political party, which is called Morena. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the frustrations with COVID, with unemployment, with recession, insecurity is focused on his party more than him as a person, because there is this feeling that 
He's with the people. He's trying to help the people, even if we're not seeing results. So there's frustration with this party. And there's also what we're seeing is a real weakness in the opposition. So there's an opening for change and for opposition, but they have not been able to really coalesce around particular people, a particular party, or a particular message. Now, that said, this is not a presidential year. This is not a federal year. This is really more, it's midterm, so it's more local elections. And so a lot of these things, just like in the United States, they get decided on local issues. You know, they get decided on whether the bridge got built down the road, or they get decided on whether somebody's family behaved badly and, and there's, you know, evidence of corruption and the like. You know, I think what we are going to see somewhat in Mexico, as we'll see in many other countries throughout Latin America or the world, frankly, in this next year or so, is an an anti-incumbent feeling. People feel that it's been a very rough year and they blame the government. And so there's the feeling that it's time to look for others. So what I expect is, you know, Morena will lose some seats, but with the parties that support them, because there's some smaller parties that vote alongside Morena, they'll continue to have a, a majority in the Congress But one telling thing is you have seen the president, López Obrador, become much more aggressive against this sort of independent electoral institute, which oversees the elections and makes sure people aren't spending money they're not allowed to spend, you know, illegally campaign financing and the like, or doing other sorts of things. He's been much more aggressive against that organization when it goes against his own political party or his his moves and against other sort of independent parts of Mexico's democratic system. So I think there's a fear that he won't have the power that he's had for the last two plus years, almost three years. I was thinking, I was looking at the map and thinking about people migrating from Honduras and Guatemala, El Salvador. And, you know, when you look at the map, it's such a long way to go to get to the U.S. border. And the U.S. is hoping, you know, that Mexico will sort of slow the movement of those people. Once they enter Mexico, how do they get to the United States? It's an astonishingly long distance to travel if you don't have money and and you don't, you know, you're not driving a car or something. It seems to me like an incredible journey. It is an incredibly arduous journey and it's buses and it's trains on the sides of trains or tops of trains. There is a criminal and organized crime element to this. So, you know, coyotes and others that will take money and, and, and ferry you through Mexico up to the border, many places. And what we've seen over the last few years is particularly for the very desperate and the poor who don't have the thousands of dollars to pay an organized criminal group is these caravans. So they go together to not be preyed upon by criminals, but hundreds or even at times thousands of people going together. And many of them end up walking these incredibly long distances. And you have to imagine how terrible things are at home that you would undertake that kind of journey. But it is a it is a very long path. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to News Items. One of the things that's emerging for the U.S. midterm elections is the immigration issue. Obviously, the Republicans see a big opening there and for good reason. It's one that can help them in the 40 or 45 congressional districts that are competitive, I guess is the word. How is the Biden administration, their approach different from the Trump administration's approach? And are they having success or is it as chaotic as some on the right seem to think? 
Well, there are significant differences. The Trump approach to Mexico was one that was you know, very hard and, and talking about if they don't stop migrants, we're going to put tariffs and, you know, it's sort of there's a lot of bluster to it. But in the end, the Trump administration only asked of Mexico to stop migration. The Trump administration did not deal with economic issues in terms of, say, U.S. companies that felt that they weren't being treated fairly by the Mexican government. They never got into those issues. Um, the Trump administration never really dealt with security issues. Mexico had been pulling back in terms of U.S.-Mexico cooperation on security, and the Trump administration didn't really deal with those issues. The Trump administration didn't have sort of a forward-leaning approach in terms of values-based foreign policy, human rights issues, democratic checks and balances. That was not something that they focused on. So for AMLO, for López Obrador, the president of Mexico, you know, they got along quite well because if he stopped migration, it would allow AMLO to put in place the big domestic project that he had, which was really to concentrate power, which is what he's been doing for the last two and a half years. So I think there was an understanding and almost partnership between Trump and AMLO in that sense, because it was easy for AMLO to do what he wanted to do as long as he stopped migrants from coming, which he did. You turn to Biden and it's a much more expansive agreement. You see the U.S. trade representative and others wanting to make sure it's a, you know, dealing with economic issues, focusing in on that part of things, bringing these cases into the U.S. MCA labor dispute mechanism and the like. You see them focused a bit on checks and balances, on democracy, making sure that elections are free and fair. You're starting to hear talk about these things, talk about corruption or anti-corruption initiatives. And you see migration on the table as well and, and security issues as well. So you're starting to see a much broader, more comprehensive U.S.-Mexico agenda from the U.S. side, which is leading to some tensions with the Mexican government, who really doesn't want to deal with these aspects. AMLO is a very inwardly looking, domestically focused president. And so it's a bit tenser than in the past. The one thing we do see is Central American migration for AMLO is also a challenge, right? So the United States does not want migrants coming up to its border because of you know, the challenges of processing them and integrating them into our society and, and the challenges and tensions and polarization that brings. Mexico has some of that similar dynamic within Mexico, where there are big parts of the Mexican population that don't want Central Americans moving to Mexico, don't want them integrating into their society, moving next door, you know, taking their jobs. Some of that same rhetoric we hear in the United States also happens in Mexico. So there you do see the Biden and AMLO administration. There's a lot of similarities and, and sort of, you know, they can work together on this issue because it serves both of them politically to try to stop the flows that are coming from Central America. I wanted to ask you, where is the Mexican media in all of this? I don't have a sense of, you know, what the major outlets are or platforms are, how people get their news in Mexico these days. And, you know, is it as uh, segmented as it is here in the U.S.? One thing that we've seen over the last 20 plus years was a real blossoming of the Mexican media, of TV, of newspapers, of social media. We saw back 15 years ago, Mexico signed a Freedom of Information Act. So you see investigative journalism and, and those things have all grown and, and really opened up Mexico's democracy over the last 20 plus years. These last few years you have seen from the government and from AMLO himself in this morning press conference that he holds every morning attacks on the fourth estate, attacks on independent media, uh, sometimes calling out individual columnists or reporters that he feels treated him or, or some of his policies unfairly, sometimes taking on newspapers, both in his morning speeches or using the Mexican version of the IRS and others to audit these organizations. So you do see these approaches in limiting free speech that is out there that we've actually seen blossom over the last 20 years. And I think right now what 
is happening is there's it's under threat the way it is in many countries around the world. I trust he doesn't go after uh, experts from the Council on Foreign Relations, right? Uh, I'll let you know if he calls me out on one of his <laughs> his manineras, as he calls them, his morning his morning speeches. <laughs> You know, we can never talk about any country without talking about their financial system. Where is Mexico's central bank at this stage of the, quote, recovery, end quote? And how strong are the elements of the financial system? How are they holding up given this avalanche of debt? So Mexico's central bank has been, the independence of its central bank has been one of its strengths for three decades. It really has been a very strong institution since you know the sort of financial and peso crisis of the 1980s and early 1990s it's become a very independent entity there are questions right now about whether that will continue and in fact just in the last couple of weeks the president has said that he will not renominate the current head of the central bank who the financial markets like very much who's seen as a pragmatist but a very solid central banker and an independent actor so there are questions about where the central bank will go though it has yet to be determined on that side the other interesting thing as you look back over this last year is Lopez Obrador is one of the only presidents around the world who decided not to implement any type of stimulus package. So the Mexican government's support for businesses or for the economy more generally, consumers or the like, was less than, much less than 1% of GDP over this last year. So you had policies of austerity even in the face of COVID and the challenges there on the economy. So overall, you have not seen a huge increase in the debt. You've seen some increase in the debt because the overall economy shrunk right. this last year. And so you've just seen some increases, but you have not seen the government adding to that. There has not been deficit spending over the last year. So you still have a pretty good you know, sense of debt to GDP that's still quite manageable for the government. I think the one area, if I was a financial analyst and I was looking at Mexico, that I that I would keep my eye on is Pemex, which is the state-owned energy company. And this is a government that's pushing for much greater control of the whole energy sector, electricity, oil, gas, everything by the government, pushing out any kind of private sector investment or involvement. And it is a energy company. Pemex is one that just hemorrhages money. It is not profitable, nor has it been able to make the kinds of fines and add to reserves um, on its own um, that will allow it to produce more and come out of the red. So that, I think, is probably one of the biggest worries if I was looking at the overall financial situation. It's less the pandemic, it's less that side, because this is an austere government, but it's not austere when it turns to Pemex and oil. You wouldn't think uh, AMLO, as a man of the left, let's say, uh, would be an austerity guy, if you will. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, people paint him as the left and he did campaign in a, you know, supporting of the poor, supporting those who were left out of the old system. But he is a socially conservative person right, um, right. and supports that. And he is, yeah, he's been very austere. So he is in many ways a very conservative person in himself and in the way he has governed. The person who's actually spent more uh, on the poor and and the like in Latin America has been Bolsonaro, who's the president of Brazil, who right. no one would accuse of being a leftist. So it's it's all an upside down world, we can say. <laughs> and the other question, which is not about Mexico, but is about the upcoming presidential race in Brazil. Can you do a scene setter there for us? It's going to be my favorite presidential election next year, I think. <laughs> going to be a battle of Brazil heavyweights, definitely. <laughs> so you have the current president, 
Jair Bolsonaro, who is a bit of a maverick, let's say. He's very socially <laughs> conservative. His strongest support base are, you know, sort of grain farmers and, you know, Minas Gerais. So that's sort of think about if the, you know, Iowa corn farmers really controlled a big section, maybe they do, control a big section of, of our U.S. politics. That's his strong base, as well as, you know, some urban folks who are upset with crime and, you know, some of the changes in Brazilian society and the like. And, you know, looks like his biggest competition is going to be the former president, Lula, who's been in Brazilian politics for many decades now. He was kept out of the last election by some court decisions around some corruption cases that he was charged with corruption as part of this. It's called the Lava Jato scandal, which was a, a big scandal involving, you know, their state-owned energy company and, and lots of bribes and, and corruption charges. But he has been cleared of at least those cases, that those cases were done incorrectly. So he is now free to run again for president. And so far, the polls look like Lula can pull it out again. So we will see. But it will be left versus right. It will be an incredibly tense and complicated race. And so if you think this last year in the United States was a complicated one, this is just going to be the Brazilian version of that. And will it, like last year, be just a referendum on Jair or... Will it be more complicated than that? It will be a referendum on Bolsonaro, but it will also be a referendum on Lula because he has been president before. Right. Uh, so it will be which way do we want Brazil to go? Do we want to go back to the Lula days and, and the sort of left that he represented or, or what we think he represents? Right. And so there's many who don't like him and many who love him and miss him. And the same thing on Bolsonaro. So, you know, Bolsonaro and Trump were compared and they were very good friends by all accounts. But imagine if we had sort of another former president, if it was Obama versus Trump, we can't do that in our system. But it's, right. it was a little bit of a different race in that sense. We're going to have that showdown between those two big political movements and, and political imaginings, if you will, right? Perceptions of, of leaders. <laughs> it's going to be really fun, I think. They clear the field, right? I mean, there's I don't no... see any room for anyone else. As long as the two of them can run, as long as, you know, there nobody's, you know, the, the current president isn't impeached or uh, Lula as candidate is not Hauled back in uh, some other cases and brought up of corruption against them. As long as they're able to run, I don't see any space for any oxygen for any other third candidate. Are you writing a, a new book about Mexico? I am actually writing a new book about uh, globalization and regionalization of supply chains and trade more generally. So North America plays a big part of that, but so does Asia, Europe, and other parts of the world. Tell us about that preview. Preview. There you go. <laughs> the book looks at the last sort of 40 years of globalization and, you know, people, they love it or they hate it or they blame it. But what we've seen more than globalization over the last 40 plus years has been regionalization. So if you look at trade flows, foreign direct investment flows, the use of patents, the flows of information, the flows of people, they're much more likely when they go international to go regional, to go to neighbors than to go more broadly. And particularly in Europe and in Asia, those regional flows have deepened over the last 40 plus years, while North America flows have not really. And so the argument of the book is that there's strength in this regionalization. And so as the United States thinks about the next 20 or 30 years and the next round of globalization that we're entering with automation and demographic change and, and all these other technological shifts, that a regional approach is the one that will make us more competitive globally. So that augurs ill for Belt and Road then, right? Or not? Well, Belt and Road is part of tying the Asia supply chains together. So is 
TPP, the CPTPP, so is RCEP, which is the agreement that China has helped spear with the ASEAN nations. So the infrastructure, the trade agreements, the movement of capital, um, both for many years into China and then more recently China investing in many of its neighbors and setting up manufacturing there, that really is still tying that region together. And all those countries are finding economic strength and advantage in doing so. Well, thank you very much for doing this, Shannon. We really appreciate it. And we hope to have you back on soon. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'd love to join you again. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items, the podcast, is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music is composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is the great Tom Stewart. I'll be back tomorrow with my co-host Rebecca Darst for a round of news analysis and discussion. See you then.